This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Okay, I hope you're enjoying the uh, activities today, getting some food. I think lunch is on its way if it's not here yet. And lots of, lots of uh, great things to check out. Thanks for being here. Right now we're going to... Uh, we have the pleasure of having another speaker to talk with us for a little bit. Um, <clears throat> Tamara Coleman-Hill is a teacher here at Moraine. She's an activist on many social and, and environmental issues. Her professional work as an activist was with the organization Black Women for Reproductive Justice. She was the senior policy associate and worked with legislators on state and federal policy issues that impact women, particularly black women. So it gives me great pleasure to uh, welcome now uh, my colleague and friend, Tammy Coleman-Hill. Thank you. <laughs> All right, I need to get hydrated. And I've been sick for the last week, so I'm hoping my voice lasts um, through the next, I don't know, about 20 minutes. Um, I guess I can stand here. I'll need to control the computer here. Um, thanks, Mike. Um, as Mike said, I teach COM here. Um, some of my students are here. Um, I've been teaching for the last 13 years, teaching composition and literature um, here for five years, and then also at the City Colleges of Chicago and at Robert Morris College. Um, but in that time, I've also done some other things beyond teaching. My sort of personal interests um, sort of lie in women's issues. So I found myself a few years ago asked by a good friend of mine who has been working as an activist for women's rights for the last, I don't know, 20 some odd years in different areas. Um, she'd know my interest, and so she asked if I would be interested in working with her organization, as Mike said, Black Women for Reproductive Justice, on a fellowship. Um, so we applied for the fellowship, and I ended up being awarded a two-year fellowship where I was able to actually work and get paid um, as an activist. Um, to uh, sort of serve in many ways, because I think advocacy and activism and service is not necessarily different. I think they all sort of operate together. Um, but I was able to work and um, deal with legislators sort of as a lobbyist in a way, not one of those bad guys that you hear about in D.C., but a different sort of lobbyist. But my job essentially was to take the issues or the concerns of the community in which I was working for, which is particularly um, the African-American community, although many of the women's issues that I worked on also impact women of other ethnicities as well. But in the sort of world of activism, we tend to work in these sort of niche um, areas and focus on particular groups. Um, but my job was to take our issues, the, the research that we've done, the information that we had from the community in which we were working with, to the legislators and really urge them to support legislation that was written to, that would help or, or um, um, uh, have a positive impact. Um, on that particular community, which is African-American women. My focus was on reproductive health, reproductive rights. So um, we worked on issues ranging from just basic reproductive health services to issues regarding family planning and um, women's right to choose and these sorts of things. So some of the work um, in and of itself was pretty controversial. So um, that was the kind of challenge um, in working on women's issues. Um, so that's kind of what I did in terms of official work. 
Um, but my activism and my what I would consider advocacy has been um, kind of a lifetime um, thing for me. It's not, it wasn't just involved in that uh, three-year period in which I was working on that fellowship. Um, and one example I'll give you, and I meant to bring in the newspaper clipping this morning, but I was rushing. I have uh, three kids, and two of them have birthdays today and tomorrow. So I was rushing trying to do that this morning, and I forgot to bring in the newspaper clipping. But one of the ways in which I sort of think about advocacy is just by doing really basic things that you feel passionate about. Um, and for me, my passion is, uh, has probably been with me since the moment I was born, if you ask my parents. But in high school, when I was about 16 years old, I grew up in Southern California in Pasadena. Um, at our high school, there were some of us who were dissatisfied with a new program that the principal was instituting at the high school. It was a uh, program that was related to scheduling. So for many of us, High school was a place where we could, um, you know, it was this big new place. We, we took different classes. We were mixed in. The freshmen were mixed in with the seniors. Sometimes you had a class with um, upperclassmen and lowerclassmen mixed together. And for us, we thought that was the beauty of high school. This new principal, she came in and she wanted to institute this new system called the house system. This house system was created to sort of build community, at least according to what she thought was community. Um, and so each freshman class that would come in, they would be in cohorts, and they would only take courses with those cohorts. This scheduling was a problem for us because it changed scheduling for every other program on campus. So for those of us who were involved in after-school activities like athletics or cheerleading and these sorts of things, the theater, um, we weren't able to take classes in a way that best suited those particular activities. Nonetheless, we were dissatisfied. So what did we do as 16-year-olds? Well, um, I was pretty active at the school, um, involved in different activities. And this particular day, we, we had been talking about our dissatisfaction over the course of, I don't know, a couple of months. And we also had the help of a very liberal um, 1960s kind of um, activist chemistry teacher who also was on campus. So she was kind of pushing us towards um, um, sort of taking action. But we had a Martin Luther King assembly. It was in February. I was actually in the assembly. And what we had planned as 16-year-olds, um, at the end of my performance, I was in a dance group. At the end of my performance, I was to read a speech that was written by some other students. And it, what it essentially said, it gave credit to Martin Luther King, his work, his nonviolent protest, the way in which he wanted to change society. And the point of reading that to the group of students our principal and all the other people, right, no one expected me to do this. The point of doing that was to link our dissatisfaction, our wanting to make change to the work of King, the man that we were celebrating that day. So I got up there after the performance. I went to the mic, and uh, the coach sort of looked like, why is she there, because that wasn't really planned. And I read the speech, and the last line in the speech was, you know what to do. And there was a large number of students who already knew what we were doing, and they all walked out of the um, assembly hall or the auditorium. For the next three days, students who wanted to participate, which was a, which was a pretty large number of students, we brought our, our uh, beach chairs, our you know, blankets, and we camped out on front of the um, high school campus, and we all refused to go to classes until the principal changed the policy. Um, many of us sacrificed grades because the classes still went on, the teachers were still giving tests, right? This is something that the students chose to do, and this is also a part of being an advocate and being an activist. Sometimes you sacrifice some of those, you know, other things um, in your life. 
for the cause, right? Um, eventually, the principal left. She didn't change the policy, but she ended up leaving a couple years later. So we did have to live with this policy or this new program that we didn't like. But I think for me, the thing that I gained is that if you're not happy with something, you really don't just have to live with it. Or even if you do have to live with it, because sometimes things don't change. In our case, uh, the um, uh, school program didn't change. But we really put our best foot forward in thinking about what we could do, how we could actually make that change. Um, there's in, in the newspaper clipping, I'm actually on the front of the newspaper kicking back in my lawn chair and not going to my history class, um, which my parents always sort of laugh about. But my parents, fortunately, were pretty supportive, and they said, if this is what you believe in, then go ahead and, you know, do it. Um, but that's one ex another example of work that I feel like in my life has been important that I've done as a, sort of an advocate or an activist for a particular cause. Um, more recently, I am on a million different listservs and emailing lists where I get information about things going on from the environmental working group. So I find out about water that's being polluted or some, somebody's uh, workers' rights that's, that's being infringed upon in one particular country or another. And I'm always making sure that I stay abreast of what's happening and I always think about what I can do. Right? I may not be able to go sit out on the lawn like I did in high school, but in many cases these email links will also come with links to my legislator where I can write to them and say, hey, I want you to vote this way on this particular issue or that particular issue, and I'm in your district. Right? So advocacy and activism is pretty broad. Right? You don't have to be the person standing out there with this sign or marching in the streets or the person sitting out on the lawn or the person with the biggest mouth like I was you can do very basic everyday things that don't necessarily cause inconvenience in your life to be an advocate. Um, so that's kind of what I do just as a person. That's kind of who I am. So I sort of consider myself a, um, an activist even when I'm not so active. So what I'd like to talk about today, this is a, a slide presentation that I used when I was actually working as a paid activist for the organization Black Women for Reproductive Justice. Part of my work was to train women in the community, average, everyday women, um, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different levels of education, but train them and teach them how they can become advocates for themselves. Because there are activists, like I was, who actually get paid or who have titles, um, who are lobbyists and these sorts of things, but then there are the everyday people, and those are the folks that the the decision makers really care about. They don't really care about what I have to say because I'm the person that's always talking. I'm always talking. I'm always writing letters. I'm always coming to their office. They actually want to see what other folks feel and if what I'm saying and what I'm representing is true to the community and, and that I was attempting to sort of advocate for. So this presentation focuses on just kind of general advocacy. It doesn't matter what the cause is, what the issue is, what your concern is. Um, you can use the tools that are here also for different processes, whether we're talking about a very specific um, legislative process like how to navigate the Illinois state legislator if you wanted to get a policy passed. You could also take these ideas and think about how to get through the Moraine Valley process, right? So if there's something that you're dissatisfied with here at the college, how do you go about making change? Do you really have a voice? Can you say something? Who are the decision makers, right? These sorts of questions. Or even at your house. If your alley needs to be paved and you keep driving in um, potholes and you wonder where your tax dollars are going, who do you talk to in order to get this done, 
right? Um, all the ideas that I have here in the slideshow, I think, transfers to all of these different areas of um, being an advocate or, um, ad or uh, th this whole notion of advocacy. And I want this to be as interactive as you want it to be. So if you have questions or if you're not clear about something, just um, let me know, and I will address those concerns. Okay, address those concerns. All right. So you kind of heard about my experience. What is advocacy? Well, for me, advocacy is, is active, right? The, the root of the word activism is based in active. So you're doing something. What that is you're doing, I'm not really sure, but there are a lot of different um, uh, adjectives that I'm using to help us understand this concept. We're talking about action. That action could be physical action, like marching in the streets, holding up picket signs, or it could be something that's pretty sedentary, literally sitting at your computer and writing an email to someone, right? That's action. Or sending something on Facebook, which we get a lot of information, at least in my world, of folks who are interested in social justice and all of these sort of issues going on in the world. I tend to get lots of information about things going on via Facebook. And you're not that active. Well, your mind is active, but your body isn't active, so it doesn't really require a lot to be an advocate via um, social media kinds of tools. I also think about advocacy as pleading, as defending, or recommending. Just simply recommending something is action, right, is advocacy. You're advocating for something. If you think that we don't have enough of a particular type of, I don't know, magazine resource here at the college in our library, how do you walk up to the circulation desk or who do you talk to in order to get these things that you need in order to get the most out of your education, right? Recommend something, plead or ask, right? All of this stuff um, is what I consider advocacy. Um, speaking up is the last one that I have here. And I think that this is the hardest for people because not all of us are like me. I'm always speaking up. I probably speak up too much. People are telling me to shut up. Um, not everybody speaks up because that's not everybody's thing. That's not their personality. But that doesn't mean you can't advocate. But there's got to be somebody who's speaking up, right? That's a big part of change making. Somebody who's willing to kind of put themselves out there, um, take risks, because it certainly is risk taking when you do speak up or when you kind of separate yourself from the rest of the group, right? It requires a little bit of um, putting yourself on the line. Um, so that's important when you think about advocacy, what your role is, what your personality is, what your, um, the capacity that you have to do certain things. But I think that there's a place for each of us in this world of um, activism and advocacy. It's not just those of us who maybe have those A uh, personalities or, you know, who's always talking. Um, others of us can also be involved. Um, but the point is, is drawing the community, whatever community in which we're talking about, drawing the community's attention to a problem. And in most cases, when we talk about activism, we're acting because there's a problem. We're, something's unsettling, something's uncomfortable, something is, um, you know, unsatisfactory, at least as far as we're concerned. How do you then pull others in? Change generally doesn't happen with just one person. Although one person can be the catalyst, change generally happens when you can pull other people in. I think it's really important to understand that if you're unhappy with something, it's likely that other people are unhappy and you're not the only one. So it's not as, as hard as it seems to pull a community of people in. When we think about advocacy, it's not just this kind of 
disorganized, chaotic thing where everybody's complaining. It's not a bitch session, right? <laughs> gripe session, sorry. Excuse my French. Um, it's not a gripe session. It's really about being thoughtful, being organized, and really thinking about what it is that you want, which requires a little bit of work, right? People who march in the streets, they don't just get out there and start marching just kind of randomly. There are phone calls that are made. There are letters that are being written. There's an organizer, a person roping everybody in, contacting folks. Do you guys remember the um, Occupy Wall Street movement a couple years ago? which sort of started on Wall Street. All of a sudden, there was an Occupy Chicago. There was an Occupy Philadelphia. There might have been an Occupy Shenzhen, China. I don't know. But these people all worked together and connected with folks that they knew around the country to build these movements. It wasn't just random people going out there for no apparent reason. So it's important to understand that this is a process, and it does take time. Um, some of the things that are involved in that process is thinking about your goals. What is it that you want? Is it realistic? Can you achieve that goal? And then thinking about objectives. Considering who the audience is, right? Where you want to direct your efforts. You're not just randomly yelling out to the world that there's a problem and it needs to be fixed. You're trying to figure out who you need to be talking to, right? Who is your audience? And for those of you in my comm class, we talk about this, and anybody else who's taken um, either speech or, or composition, um, you generally will talk about directing your argument towards an audience. Um, how you want to develop and deliver your message, or who is going to develop and deliver your message. Sometimes the face, the person, makes a big difference. Um, I remember when I was working as an advocate or as an activist, officially working, um, we had a program, again, we were working on women's reproductive rights issues, which are pretty controversial because that does include talking about abortion, which divides the country, as we all know. Um, but we had a program in which we were trying to get the churches within the community to talk a little bit more about family planning and reproductive health care. And we know that sometimes within religious communities, these are very touchy issues and churches don't necessarily want to talk about this stuff. But we felt like, because the large number of the women in which we served were a part of the churches, that that would be a really vital place for us to kind of get, draw the attention, right, and get the support. So we were sitting around in the office. I'm not a particularly religious person at all. Um, we were sitting around the office, and although I'm usually the person that goes out to the, the legislators or whatever groups we're trying to, you know, deal with, we all decided that I was not the person to deliver the message, which was very wise, right? Because I'm not religious, I don't necessarily have the, the sensitivity to really understand their concerns or what's going on within their institutions. So it was okay for me to sit back and say, I shouldn't be the messenger. Let's send somebody else. That's strategic, right? I might go in and say something and put my foot in my mouth and the churches will slam their door in my face, right? Somebody else may go in, may have a relationship with the churches, may even be a part of um, the, you know, those particular religious institutions that we were talking to, and they may feel more of a connection and a sensitivity with that particular messenger. So who's going to deliver your message is really important, and you might not be the best person even though you have passion and you have stake in a particular issue or cause or you know, concern that you're dealing with. Um, it's also important in thinking about the, the process. If you're talking about something here at Moraine and you want something changed, who do you go to? Do you talk to your instructor? Maybe not. Maybe you go to the 
you know, the dean of such and such, right? Maybe you go to, maybe it requires a board vote. Our board of trustees might have to vote on an issue. So how do you navigate that process and get to that decision maker? It's really important to understand that. And then the last thing is building alliances. And that just is a fancy way of saying getting people engaged on this issue as well. So that when you do get to the decision maker, whoever that may be, whether it's your instructor or the dean or the board of trustees or um, your U.S. congressman, um, they see that it's not just one person, that there's a large group of people of different backgrounds, different concerns that are also um, interested in this issue as well. So those are some of the elements that, that I worked on um, that I had to think about before I actually went out and started speaking up, right? How do I get to that um, end result that I'm looking for? Um, so when we think about goals, that's kind of the big picture thing, right? What do you hope to achieve over the next five to ten years? Now, on this slide you see five to ten years because the issues that I was working on, these are big issues that take five to ten years to kind of deal with. For you, if you're talking about something, you know, here at the college or something with your instructor or even getting a, a, a light bulb in the lamppost in front of your house because it's dark and you think it's unsafe, that's likely not going to take you five to ten years. So you need to think about what that is and what your goal is and why you want to um, um, make the change that you're looking at making. So is the issue with the broken light bulb and the light post around your community, is that a safety issue? So is your larger concern that you want your community to be safe? And maybe there are other things also involved beyond just simply getting your alderman or whoever it is in your community to change that light bulb. But it's important to think about goals. Um, objectives. We always talk about objectives as these kind of incremental steps that you need to take to reach your goal. So you don't just automatically get your end result. You do things that get you closer and closer to the goal, right? So here at Moraine, you guys are taking classes. You don't come in the first, you know, semester that you start and you finish up your COM 101 class and then you're transferring to UIC. Right? It's a two-year goal, likely, for many of you. For some of you, it's a six-year goal, and that's okay. Whatever your goal is, it's your goal. Right? But you're taking those steps to get to that result, which might be transferring or getting an associate's degree or whatever that is. Um, so it's important to be able to mark what those steps are. Again, this stuff is very transferable. All of these skills you can use in your everyday life. It's not just about when you see a problem in the world or, or being an advocate. It really is about thinking about the big picture and what you want your small community, your personal life, and then what you want the larger world to actually look like. You can take all of these ideas and sort of transfer them. Um, audience. When we think about audience, there's two things that we're thinking about, the primary audience and the secondary audience. Your primary audience is the person who ultimately can get what you want done, right? So let's say you're doing, we're doing something here at the college and we need to get a board vote. So they would be the primary audience because the board needs to vote and approve it in order for this thing to pass, whatever it is that we want. But we can't always just go to the board. We don't always get to sort of see the people that we need to see. Either they're inaccessible, let's say the President of the United States. I mean, I don't know what it is that you would need from the President, but most of us don't just get to talk to him, right? Or even the Governor. Most of us don't get to talk to the Governor. So then you have to think about who the secondary audience is. And these are individuals or groups that can impact the primary audience. So who do you know that knows them? Or who do you know that knows him, that knows her, that knows him? 
right? There's always this kind of connection that we have with other people. Um, within religious communities, within churches, um, one of the things that we, we talked about, again, in our office working on women's rights, is that uh, a lot of times churches are conservative, and in many churches um, the leader or the pastor of the church is male, and that's not necessarily the role of women. So one of the things that we talked about was how do we build a relationship with the wives of the ministers or the pastors, right? Who is the best person to talk to than someone's spouse? And get them to then go and talk to their spouse about the issue, right? So if we can get the woman on our side, because these are clearly woman, women's issues, then maybe she'll talk to him at dinner or when they're out on a date or a pillow talk or whatever about these concerns that are important to women. So, so the wife of the minister would be the secondary audience and the minister himself, if we were talking about um, a religious institution or the pastor or whatever the title is, would be the primary audience. Um, messages. Again, I gave the example of me not being a good messenger to the churches, but before we even get a messenger, what is the message? For those of you who pay attention at all to politics, especially if you look at what's going on in the two different parties, you'll notice that for the most part, unless there's a misstep, the people within given parties, no matter who they are, they have a message that they stick to. They all keep saying the same thing on the, on the same issue. And you wonder, like, do these people have their own individual brain? Yeah, they do, but they don't use it because it's not a really good idea in politics to use your own brain, apparently, right? So they use this sort of group identity, this message that they've created in some backroom meeting somewhere that they keep saying over and over again and maybe in slightly different ways, whatever the issue is. So if we're talking about um, gun control, you'll hear one particular party saying the same thing over and over about gun control. You'll hear another party saying something else about gun control. Um, issue of same-sex marriage, you'll hear one party, although we've got one party shifting on that issue, but if you've noticed it, that party, um, the Republican Party is, has been shifting on the issue of same-sex marriage, a lot of them are shifting, right? That's part of the way it works. What is the message? What do we want to put out there? And how do we want to be seen, right? That's all strategically done. These aren't things that just happen um, by happenstance. But whatever your goal is, whatever your message is, it's a persuasive statement that needs to be concise, and it sort of captures the attention of other people, of the decision makers, of your audience, and it sort of gets them or gives them a sense of who you are, what your interests are, or what group you're a part of, right? It sort of build, it creates an identity in a way. And it's important that your message is clear and that it is consistent. Um, all right, in terms of messages, we think about content, what's in there, and I, I, I keep thinking about um, composition classes because this is what we talk about. What are the ideas themselves? But not just the ideas, but what's the language that you're using? Is the language appropriate for your audience? Is it something that they're going to understand? So you need to think about how you say things, the words you use, right? All of this stuff is important when we're trying to deliver messages. And maybe your message varies from group to group. Maybe the language, the actual language changes. Um, in our work, um, we found within the larger women's movement that it was important for us, specifically if we were dealing with um, uh, communities of women who English was not their first language, that when we crafted messages in their language, it also carried meaning, cultural meaning, that maybe didn't hold the same meaning in another language. So sometimes our messages changed 
slightly to appeal to certain audiences, right? So that's important. But maybe it's not the language itself that needs to change. Maybe it's the way in which you're using the, you know, English um, needs to be modified in order to make sure your message is, is being taken in as you want it to be taken in. Again, we talked about the messenger. Who is your messenger? That's important. The format, how are you going to deliver it? Are you going to write a letter? Are you going to create a billboard? Are you going to, you know, create some sort of television PSA, which is what we're doing in my comm class? Are you going to um, sort of be out in the street and create signs that people are going to hold? How do you want your messages to be delivered? Are you going to go to somebody's office with 20 people behind you and say, this is what we want, right? That's another way in which you can think about the format. And then, of course, the time and place. These are all things that um, activists strategically sort of think about in order to um, make change happen. Um, when, we, when we think about decision-making, there, there are two kinds of processes that we look at. We look at formal processes and then also informal process. A formal process would be what does that institution require you to do in order to make that change? So you might have to go to this person, fill out this form, fill out a complaint sheet, and mail that in. Right? That's the formal process. Um, the informal process is kind of those activities that are happening concurrently with the formal processes. So maybe that means that while you're waiting for your bill to move through the Illinois legislator, you're also meeting with legislators to talk to them so they know who you are, they know what you're about, they know what your issue is. It's kind of the, or having lunch or having dinner. That's why you see lobbyists spending a lot of money. Right? They spend a lot of money to um, wine and dine legislators while their bill is sort of moving through the process in order to get things done. I don't know that that's always um, the most ethical thing that they do, but we all know that that happens um, in those informal processes. Um, really quickly, and I won't um, belabor this, but just as an introduction, when we're thinking about the Illinois legislative process, which means how laws get made in this state, there's a very specific route in which you go. Um, but there's a few things that, that are important to understand about how laws are made in Illinois. Um, one, you, you need to have some understanding of who those people are, your government officials, right, what those bodies look like. Um, you need to have an understanding of the path. How does a bill, simply sitting down and writing a law, get to actually being law? Um, lobbying, what lobbying is, and then understanding um, how to build relationships with legislators or lawmakers. Just a few things that you might have already learned in political science. Um, in Illinois, the General Assembly is a bicameral or sort of two-chambered body. That means we have senators um, and we also have the um, representatives. There are 59 members in the Senate. Um, there are 118 members in the House of Representatives. Each district or each member represents those in his or her district. Why do we care about that? Why do those facts matter? Is it a bird? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, so on a very basic level, you just need to know about the, the body or the entity that you are up against. That's really important. Yes? Yeah. 
It's important to know the details about individual members, especially those that you think might be on the fence that you can change. But why else? Why, why does it matter to us that there are this amount and that they represent people in their district? Because they represent you. And more importantly, beyond the fact that they represent you, they're only going to do what people in their district care about because people outside of their district don't elect them. It doesn't matter if Joe Schmo from district number 18 comes into district number 16 and say, hey, dude, I don't like what's going on here and you need to pass a law. That guy's going to look at the zip code, that dude is going to look at the zip code and say, you don't live in my district. So you have no um, really impact or influence in my job, right? On a very basic level, legislators are trying to keep their job. So the people who elect them are the people who matter. So it's important to understand who's what, who's where, who can make change, because in terms of my work, in terms of my work, a lot of um, my efforts in going to these legislators, they ignored me because I didn't live in their district. I was just this sort of talking head. I mean, I did what I was supposed to do. I got the message out there, but I had to get women in their own communities to go to their legislators and say, we actually care about this issue because they don't care what I'm talking about because I don't live in their district. So they're concerned with who lives where. So oftentimes what you'll see, and I do this a lot when I'm doing um, kind of online um, sort of political work, oftentimes you'll see that it'll ask your zip code. When you email a legislator, they have these kind of template forms where you can put in what you want to say to them. They'll also ask the zip code because they're checking, or your address, checking to see if you're in their district. So all of this is important to think about, um, what the, the, the whole legislative body looks like, how they get elected, how they keep their job, how they get kicked out of their job, right? All of this stuff is really important to understand. Um, again, to be reelected, members must satisfy a majority of the voting um, constituents. So if we don't like what's going on, we don't have to elect people. I always find it funny when I hear conversations and complaints about government. I always say to myself, well, you voted for those clowns. Um, so, you know, I think it's important for people to understand the power that you actually have and that we don't have to, con you know, continue to allow people to run our lives in a way who don't represent our interests. I think oftentimes we get complacent and we don't do anything or we get a little bit um, frustrated with the process and we think that everything's corrupt and change is not going to happen. The truth is everything is corrupt, but change can happen, right? But that's only if we actually work within the way in which the process is set up or we change the process, which is also possible too, right? But you have to learn about what that process is. Um, okay. Again, the, the last thing that's important to understand is how long these people stay in their jobs. And I'm talking about the legislators. It's not a life sentence. So if you don't like the legislator, the good thing is in two years this guy might be gone or this woman might be gone. And you can be a big part of making them go if that's what you want. But understanding when the election happens, when you know, new people come in or go out is, is, is important. All right. In terms of thinking about how we start from this is the change that I want and I want it to be law, and again, you can transfer these things to other situations. I'm just specifically now talking about the Illinois legislative process. For a bill to become law, it must be considered and passed by both chambers. So the Senate needs to pass it and the, and the uh, representatives need to pass it. So understanding, again, how that works, who to talk to, how to navigate those two processes is important. 
All right, lobbying. You hear this word a lot. It's kind of a, a dirty word in, you know, most arenas, but it's really an important process that we have, which is a part of what, what a democracy is. Um, and I don't know if you all can see it, so, and I don't like to read PowerPoint slides to people, but I'm going to read this for you in case you can't see it, because I think this is really important for people to understand. The First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees the people the right to freedom of speech and also to petition the government for redress of grievances. On that clause hangs the power of interest groups in America and their lobbyists. Lobbying is simply the practice of attempting to influence the decisions of the government. It employs a variety of methods, including, but not, lim but not confined to, oral and written communications with public officials. So, it is your right, and from my perspective, it's your duty and responsibility to use what we've been granted right, in the way in which our nation was actually formed, that it's not a special person or an activist type or a person who does this all the time or gets paid to do this. It's not their job to go and lobby the government because you're complaining. It is your job to go and lobby the government or any other body that has any authority over the way in which you live your life to state your own grievances, however you decide to do that, whether that's in writing, whether it's a letter, whether it's an email, whether you go to their office and say, hey, you know, I'm really struggling over here in my community. There's a lot of crime, and, you know, I don't ever see any police officers. Or, hey, it's really dark, you know, at the corner where I live. I'm, you know, afraid to walk down to the grocery store or whatever it is that, that the problem is. It is your right and really responsibility to sort of use this lobbying. Right? And this is not the, 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 the ugly form of lobbying that we think about when we think about corporations. This is what lobbying actually should be about regular, everyday individuals kind of bringing their issues to um, public attention in a way. Um, the great thing is email and um, uh, social media is very popular with government these days. So you can continue to do what you've always been doing and also lobby via, um, you know, social media or emails or whatever other things you can do online. But, of course, there are the good old sort of um, tried and true methods, meeting with legislators. And, by the way, you can call a legislator, whether it's an alder person, a congressperson, a senate in your district, at any time you want. You can go to their office at any time you want and ask to speak to them. Now, sometimes you don't get to speak to them the first time because they're not there, they're doing something else or whatever, but that is a part of why they do what they do. They get paid to serve your interests. So you should always feel comfortable with doing that. Another thing, and, and this is, well, this is partly about lobbying, but this is more about um, things like going to the Capitol, which I had the, the kind of pleasure of doing while I was working, and I got to go around to these different offices of um, government officials and talk to them about the concerns that I had. Literally, we, we went, we took all of our um, flyers, we took all of our information, and we walked into all of the districts that we thought were, or the district offices that we thought were of interest to our community. Some of them we got to talk to before they went and voted on a particular women's health issue that we were um, working on at that time. Some of them we saw them walking into the chamber where they vote, and we stopped them and we said, okay, we hope you're voting yes on this particular issue. Here are the women in your community that are concerned, you know, whatever. Your, your, your community is 58%, this particular group, and you should really care about them. Whatever message we had, we could go there and 
uh, uh, sort of present that message to the legislators. The other thing that people can do that they don't know about, but this requires you to kind of follow along with what's going on in terms of laws, you can go to Springfield and actually sit in on a committee hearing and testify on an issue. So let's say the issue, I don't know, um, some particular um, uh, health insurance state issue. Let's say you've been struggling with health insurance um, for one particular reason or another and you want them to vote yes on this issue. You can call in and sign up and be a part of the group that actually testifies and you can sit down at the hearing and say, hey, here is my experience with this and this is the reason why things need to change. It's not a magical process. It is open to everyone. Most people just don't take the time to actually see how they can get involved. But do know that just any of you um, can do this. Oh, that was the last thing, testify during committee hearings or meetings. All right, and then the last thing is, is, building, a, whoops, is um, building alliances. All right, I can find it. Sorry. Um, is building alliances, um, creating and maintaining networks, building coalitions, Maintaining groups of key individuals, I'm sorry, I keep switching that slide, but really trying to get other people involved, trying to figure out who else is interested in your issue and bringing them in on it. Um, so that's essentially, I mean, it's a lot. I guess it's not very basic. It's a lot to take in, but that's the process. It's an open process. It's, a, it's an accessible process, and it's a process that I think as just a citizen of this country that people should be a part of, whether it's on the, this sort of larger state level, whether it's on the, you know, working at, your, at the college level, what change can you make if you, you think that there needs to be changes, your community, your churches, or whatever institutions that you're a part of. I think it's important for people to think about what their concerns are and have the, um, the wherewithal, have the motivation and the passion to actually act on it. Because change does happen. I know it doesn't seem like it, and I feel like people are so um, apathetic and, you know, frustrated that people just don't do anything. And, and for me, it's been important to live my life in a way that reflects the values that I have and to step up or to say something when I'm dissatisfied because nobody else is going to step up and say something for me. And that's kind of been who I am. So that's it for me. I'm here to answer any questions you might have or comments folks might have. Thank you all for listening. I'm between you and lunch. Your words of food. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you so much, Tammy, for uh, for your Sorry. fantastic talk, empowering to all of us. Um, let's give her another quick hand. She was great. She doesn't have to do this. None of us do, so it's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so please continue to enjoy. Make sure you visit all of these tables and these great nonprofits that came out and the student tables. And don't forget the video installations we have back here. These two rooms are, are running two separate video programs showcasing uh, global NGOs and then tomorrow's own students' work, um, uh, profiles of local activists. So please check both of those out. Have some food and interrogate some of these student uh, 
displays here, go over to them and make them tell you about their projects. Absolutely, they want to talk to you about that, so please do that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.